Welcome to the Haunted Hacker version 1.0. And the reason why I call it 1.0 uh, this time is a milestone for, for this podcast. Uh, we do have a sponsor that, that came on board, um, a partnership with uh, Private Internet Access um, VPN solution. Uh, without further ado, we'll get into the news. Today we have Justin Beals um, from StrikeGraph, which I'm really interested to hear about their, their platform. Um, and so I speak with uh, ICE next month, uh, which is really cool. I spoke for a DHS group last year, and they referred me to ICE for their cybersecurity month. So I'm speaking to all of ICE in the U.S. Uh, coming up next month. Um, other than that, not a whole lot going on. Uh, if you haven't seen the Euro News video of the online gaming risk to kids that I did uh, with uh, Euro News, check that out. It's on their website. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, Justin, it's a pleasure having you here. It's really awesome. Um, I know a little bit about StrikeGraph, but I, I didn't want to dive in too deep because I wanted to give you an opportunity to explain it and tell the audience and the listeners what exactly you do. And your career is really interesting with the startups and stuff. We have similar experience with startups. So I'll let you go ahead and take it away. And you can, you know, introduce yourself and tell us about what you do. Sure. Um, first off, thanks for having me on the show, Mike. It's a pleasure to connect and um, and chat about uh, not only StrikeCraft, but just the broader market in which we operate. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of StrikeCraft. And what StrikeCraft does is that we help B2B companies uh, achieve security certifications to facilitate revenue. And um, the reason that I got really interested in this problem space is uh, I, I've worked in technology for a long time, um, most more recently kind of as a chief technology officer. And I realized all of a sudden, especially in the past five or six years, that our security, our security posture, our ability to assess it and validate its operation was becoming a, a sales and marketing asset. And that was really unique. I'd never seen that before in my career. And I just really wondered how uh, this being a problem, we could provide a solution that allowed people that maybe weren't deep security experts. I'm I'm not, I, I'm much more of a, a product uh, person, but we have to understand how good security is implemented and, and what good cybersecurity practices could be. But how I help um, empower you know, sales team to bring that great security work to the market and generate trust with our customers. Yeah. That's really awesome. So for the listeners who are, who are new in cybersecurity, talk a, bit of, a little bit about SOC 2 compliance and, and what that entails. Yeah, you bet. So SOC 2 is the most common independent assessment of security practices that we see in the marketplace. And um, a little bit of history uh, SOC 2 was designed by the AICPA. They're the group that is kind of uh, thought leadership for accountants in the United, certified public accountants in the United States. Um, it is a broad security standard. So uh, only about 40% of the standard itself focuses on cybersecurity specifically. Uh, there's the other 60% of it that we know are a critical service area like HR, um, uh, certainly change management from a product management perspective. And of course, I, as our CEO, we're, we're a SOC 2 type 2 audited company at StrikeGraph. And as our CEO, I have control management responsibility for things like board transparency, as an example. Yeah. 
So board, boards are really interesting. Um, I, I know that you have a pretty vast background uh, with startups. What is your what is what has been your experience with advisory boards and, and how they communicate and operate with a company? Yeah, so uh, I've had the pleasure of trying both modes. Uh, I had a, a business that I was the sole owner of um, between 2000 and 2009. We had no board per se. Uh, we, they were mostly our customers telling us what they needed and making sure that we delivered on that. Um, and then, of course, StrikeRef is a venture capital-backed startup, so we have investors that um, are board members. And then, of course, uh, as a platform and product, we're trying to you know, find advisory momentum from a board. And so let's separate those two a little bit, right? Like right. a investor board is managing the health and growth of the business. We're voting. You know, I, I need their buy-in for certain strategic initiatives that we want to take. And and so it's a community of people that's building StrikeGraph. Uh, whereas like an advisory board might be, hey, we're going to be an advisory committee for an organization like StrikeGraph. And uh, let's like next year, we're rolling out FedRAMP, I think, support. And so nice. th we might form an advisory committee on what the best implementation of FedRAMP looks like for the, their types of organizations to advise us. Yeah. Um that type of group, it's important to listen. It's important to use them as an opportunity for referrals, for direct sales, uh, but they don't drive the company. Whereas my board, uh, we definitely will take decisions about capitalization opportunities, uh, maybe critical hires that we need, and also like budgetary goals and if we're meeting them as an organization. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what do you think the biggest pain point or the most common pain point with people going for SOC 2 in mm -hmm. encounter? What's the most common? Yeah, I think the most common problem that we see is people getting checklists of activities. You're trying to be like, I'm going to just jump in line a little bit and just tell me what I need to do. You know, I, right. I adore that mentality in a way. Uh, and I made that mistake as a CTO in the past. And what what happened to me personally at a prior startup is that I was like, oh, I need to write all these security policies. And so I wrote a whole bunch of security policies that I was like, now how do I implement it? You know, and it, wait, is this all right for us? I'm not sure this fits our product or how we like to operate very well. And so um, I think what I realized is that security is very custom you know, to how a company operates. And just like, you know, you, you when you're trying to figure out how long it will take you to engineer a product, scope is everything, right? Like if I can cut the scope down by half, it'll take half as much time. And similarly with security, we want effective security. We want to be efficacious, but we don't want to do more than we need to for the risks that our organization has presented. And so one of the things we really focus on is how do we fit the right security posture to your organization. So we eliminate security theater and set you up for, you know, compliance so that you can have that nice certificate in the sales motion um, instead of just being, eh, here, go write a bunch of these policies or here's a checklist of 150 things that every company should do to be SOC 2 compliant. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've, I've had mixed feelings about compliance and, and compliance audits for, for a long time, you know, have, being a pen tester and, and looking at auditing and compliance and, and people trying to meet that, that, that level. Um, I've actually seen in the past where companies would rather pay 
a fine to meet that compliance. Yeah. Does that still exist in the industry now? Do you see that ever? I do see it like sometimes, but uh, there's, and this is a really interesting part of what has changed about this landscape. Mm. Um, there are two types of, I think, compliance motions or motivations you could say about why you would do it. One is liability focus, like you mentioned, and like a good example of one of those standards is GDPR. Mm. You know, you, you can say we're GDPR compliant. You can express that. You cannot have done any work and nothing's going to happen until someone complains to the EU commission and then you get a fine, right? right. Um, California consumer privacy is set up in a similar way. And so we see those liability standards. They aren't big drivers from an adoption perspective, honestly. People see them as a cost and they try to minimize the actual implementation as much as possible. We like the ones that are tied to reputation and revenue. And what we've seen is not so much that if you're not SOC 2 certified, you're going to get a fine. But if you're a B2B company that shares data, the buyers of your platform want to trust you. And one of the ways of them being able to trust you is to say, I've been independently assessed on SOC 2. So that's why we think, especially about SOC 2, ISO 27001, PCI DSS, even HIPAA, as mm. almost a cost to even do business and make sales. Right, right, absolutely. And, you know, the compliance and, and auditing and stuff like that gets a really bad rap in the industry as well. Um, you know, talking to people coming into the industry and, and what jobs they would pick, you know, auditing is, is usually the last one they would pick. It, with, with, you know, from my point of view, I'm a pen tester, that's my background, I would be bored to nails as an auditor. Yeah. Um, so it takes a, it takes a special type of person for that. Uh, but I, th I think that as an industry, compliance is something that, that we need to have. Um, unfortunately, it, what's really weird is that, you know, a lot of people bang the drum for compliance and meeting certain standards. Right. Right. But the same people who beat the drums are the same people who own these companies that don't do due diligence when it comes to patching or staying right. on top of known vulnerabilities. Um, do you see a lot of companies that still struggle struggle with that when they go for their SOC 2 and stuff? What's the background? What drives them to that? Yeah, so they probably were trying to win a deal and it, it, it was probably their biggest deal so far. And the buyer was like, oh, we're not going to we're not going to adopt you unless you're SOC 2 audited. And of course, like on the selling side, they're deflated. They're like, oh, we got to do this thing. And so then to your point, they're trying to ram it through as quickly as possible without actually implementing good practices. Like let's make sure we have a patch management process or uh, let's make sure that we, um, you know, we're ensuring peer review before code gets pushed into uh, production or things mm -hmm. like that. So we, you know, what we tell our customers and our platform uh, is kind of designed to really support this is first off, our platform is designed to help you scope that security posture. So you're doing the things that you realize are valuable security right off the get-go. Mm. Then it's designed to collect mm. evidence that you were able to do that. And so just from like, hey, we need to broadly operate security standards aside. It's a great platform for like, um, you know, Mike is in charge of our uh, uh, black hat hacking, you know, red team essentially. And mm. he has some control requirements, but he's not doing all the controls for our company and the VP of HR, they have their control requirements. Mm -hmm. 
and there might be uh, as, uh, someone that's running security broadly is getting all that data rolled up to make sure the security processes are being operated. Right. Um, and that seems more valid, right? Like you, you actually, from a strike wrap perspective, you design the process around patch management. We don't design the process right. for you. That's your control. Um, and as long as you're evidencing in it, then we've really prepared you to go in front of an auditor. Now, I'll say this about the, the CPA firms, the big CPA firms that we've worked with. Um, I'm disappointed to find so little common understanding, not only between the different firms, but even the individuals that audit in those firms mm -hmm. about what an appropriate solution is. And I think that this has really hurt the purchasers of audit practices and that they're like, well, this person told me this and this person told me something completely different. And I don't feel like I have a stake in saying what's right for me. Right. And we also agree that's wrong. You know, the auditor is a expert in assurance services and testing, right. not in best security practices. Right. So we really drive that and we drive that home with anyone that does audit with us. That is an audit partner is that you're not here to test on whether they did good or bad security. Control right. effectiveness is appropriate. Is the evidence supplied is appropriate? Is the standard met is appropriate? But they decide what is the best security practice for them. That's good. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, one of the things that, that I've encountered throughout the years, and especially you know when it comes to meeting compliance and stuff like that, you know, that's a really tough position as a CISO. Um, I was in line to be a CISO. I was, was a CISO at a couple companies. And it's such a fine line when it comes to compliance and auditing, right? So, so your practices really, when it comes to the actual compliance and, and the audit process, it really grades those CISOs to a certain degree. You know, how well, how well are you providing these controls? Are you providing, you know, to what extent? And I think that's one of the, the follies of that, that position as a CISO because you're responsible for so many different moving parts of that organization for compliance. Yeah. And to me, compliance should be spread out. You know, it usually falls onto the CTO or the CISO. But what about the HR director? What, right. what about what about operations director? Like that, it should be a shared responsibility. And I think that's what's brought down the industry as a whole as far as standards and security and why so many people are vulnerable because it relies so much on one little group when it's actually a complete effort of the whole company. Yeah, that's a critical feature in our solution, actually. And it's funny how differentiated it is when we've seen our competitors. We have competitors that are like, hey, we only work with the CTO or the CISO. There's one login and they go and manage that platform and they're in charge of compliance. That's right. ridiculous, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not the way good, even good security works, let alone like we're trying to meet a standard. Right. We, uh, in our platform, the very like the first step is to get you in and let's get a basic list of controls that we want to operate. The very next step is to assign those controls to an owner. Right. And, and so we fully believe that if you're going to build a better security posture, that your VP of HR is going to be in charge of onboarding, offboarding. That's their responsibility, not the CISOs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that, that's, I mean, a lot of small companies, the CISO takes so much slack. You know, yeah. they've got so much pressure and, you know, they have to stay on top of things. It's a really, it's a challenging position. And I thought at one point in my career, that's what I aspired to be was a CISO. But yeah. then I, I, I learned there was other routes to what I wanted to get to. So, 
Um, so tell me a little bit about Justin himself. Like we, we just met, so I, I literally know nothing about you as a person. So tell us about yourself, man. Sure. Uh, happy to. Well, one thing I shared, obviously, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. So shout out to all my Southerners in the room. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, I learned to program when I was a little kid. Uh, back in the day, that was the only way to get the video game on the computer. You had to like mm-hmm. copy the code out of the magazine and that would get it on there and you could play. And I, I fell in love with it. I, I really liked it. Um, I actually went to college for theater, which is probably the only business degree that I could sit through. <laughs> and, and of course, I wanted to become a tech entrepreneur kind of after that. Um, I, uh, I didn't really have access to capital uh, early on. And obviously, I don't have a computer science degree or uh, a well-known business degree. And so, you know, my experience was questionable. So uh, the early businesses that I built all had to be bootstrapped. Um, and uh, and I had um, a lot of failures, but a couple of good successes. I had a consulting business that I grew from a, my living room, just me, uh, to about 130 consultants globally. I wow. uh, sold that in 2009. And then I've done a number of venture capital backed startups, everything from enterprise education technology to AI enabled hiring systems to what we do today at StrikeGraph. That's awesome. So what do you think the the future holds for StrikeGraph? What's what's your projection trajectory? Yeah, so um you know, our sweet spot for customers is mid-market. It, there's been a gap in solutions to help that mid-market space. Um there's certainly like the legacy players like an RSA Archer or the m- more modern uh, group that we think of is like a Logicate, they're really good. And uh, from a big enterprise, top-down compliance management perspective. Um, and and there's uh, one of the things I learned that shocked me about compliance is that in 2019, globally, $100 billion was spent on non-financial audits and audit services. And what we're doing is we're eliminating consulting from the process by essentially providing an enterprise governance risk compliance platform seated with all the content you need to design your security posture, aligned to all the standards that you might want to achieve with a layer of intelligence so you can kind of not have to be a deep security expert to get started and get get moving down the path and accomplish a SOC 2 audit, for example. So I'll tell you one trend that we see in the marketplace. I'm curious if this resonates with you, Mike, is I've talked to a lot of enterprise organizations that used to do kind of top-down security compliance management that are moving more to a bottoms-up motion where like each division that has a revenue responsibility has their own compliance track. And so we are seeing a shift on the enterprise space where we're getting adoptions of StrikeGraph division by division. Right. And I I see that quite a bit too. I mean, if you look at the history of compliance within the industry, you know, it, it definitely started out with a general type compliance feel to it. But now we're getting down into the minutia. And now we're getting into different controls and different spaces and industries and, and different verticals. So I think that, you know, I think that's important. I think that as far as security goes, when you look even at a cybersecurity company, you have so many different industries within that one company. Yeah. And I think the uh, compliance with, you know, financials, cybersecurity compliance, HIPAA, I mean, to me, it seems like it's being very localized within the company. Like each one has their own compliance to reach. And I think, I think it fits right in. I think it's perfect because before too long, we're going to have a gaggle of compliances to meet. Yeah, we are. Standards and regulations. So 
that's a great way to keep track of that because not everybody's track and path is the same. Yeah, we, I I talked with one of our customers just two weeks ago, mm -hmm. and uh, they're SOC two audited. They've been using our platform for about two years now and been very successful. Um, they have uh, they do fraud detection, and they had a customer in the healthcare space reach out to them, and uh, but they asked if they were HIPAA compliant. And they're like, well, we do fraud detection. We don't really in the business of managing patient healthcare information, but now all of a sudden they need to look at HIPAA because they're starting to bring in uh, business around this and their system is going to start consuming that data. And, you know, maybe some of this, Mike, is like, we had this old adage about how data affects everything or it's very fluid. Mm -hmm. And that's what's driving like new layers of compliance and standards on top of people is like, the data is very fluid. We can move it around, but it comes with a price tag of being able right. to manage that effectively. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's crazy too, you know, and data security, data privacy is like super important. So I'll, I'll go ahead and transition into a little plug for the sponsors. Um, private internet access. So VPN solution, I don't know. I'm sure you use a VPN. I use a commercial VPN at home. I use private internet access. And the reason why is because it's one of the only ones that protects your surfing, you know, doesn't contain logs, tries to protect the user. So if you want private internet access, which is the, the best commercial VPN product for your home, I would actually go to privateinternetaccess.com slash hauntedhacker, the way it's spelled exactly the way it sounds, and uh, sign up. So that's my plug for uh, private internet access. They're great people. Um, but data privacy, let's go into that a little bit. Sure. You know, what I found, especially with ransomware events, is the fact that, yes, data privacy is super important, but the way that people... I guess, store data, I feel is even more important. Mm -hmm. And when you look at some of the companies I've done pen tests for, they believe that once you get into a database and that database has some kind of security controls, that's a done deal. Like we're, mm. we're more worried about data in transit. But to me, I think the, the data at rest is the most important thing. Yeah. Um, and there's not enough compliance around that, I don't think. I, I do think that data at rest is the, is the, well, in some ways, the more valuable target to a hacker, right? Um, data in transit is so ephemeral. You're going to get a record, you know, as you can monitor it, but you, you can't really control what records you're seeing or not seeing, possibly. Mm. Whereas if you can suck up the whole database and all the relationships with it, that's a massive data breach. Right. Um, and so it, it's certainly the, the greater risk, the greater value opportunity, um, I was uh, talking with a peer in, again, in the medical space, and they said they did an analysis of their the value of their database on the black market, and were shocked to realize it was worth more than $40 million. They were like, we had no idea how much the data was worth. Um, we certainly see data access controls as a part of the standards and encryption of data at rest, uh, which is good. And I think that encryption of data at rest is probably a, a great control because you can be like, well, if you get a copy of the data, it is encrypted if you don't have key access and we are switching out keys. There are, I, you probably know of more, even more esoteric ways to try and secure the database than I'm mentioning. Yeah. Oh yeah. There, there's some really archaic ways of, of doing things that some people hold on to. I won't go too far into it because I don't want to give attackers tidbits of information, but <laughs> yeah, the, the practices I've seen over the years of companies and, and especially when I speak about compliance, I think the most earth-shaking audit or pen test I've ever done 
was for a institution that relied on government funding to stay open. Mm-hmm. And it had to meet a certain level of compliance and it had to pass pen tests to, to maintain that level of funding. Yeah. And when I went into uh, to do the pen test, I found I just plugged my laptop in and, and just basically did a packet sniff to see what was going on on the wire before I even got started. Right. And before, before I even set up, I, I found uh, server admin credentials flying in clear text. <laughs> and they're going for compliance and, and they're trying to meet the standard. And I'm like, okay, that's an issue. You cannot have that. I said, well, it's okay because it's only one account. We all use it. And I, my mind just went, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, and it, it, it's one of those sad stories where they're going for you know compliance and, and they have to re- reach a standard or they get less money, and that's what happened. They got less money. I feel yeah. bad for them, and you know the CISO was really upset. Try to get me to change things on the on the pen test, but you know, being bound by morals and ethics, we just can't do that. But you'd be surprised how many people, how many companies come to me and say, I know we failed this pen test. I know we have way too many criticals. Can we yeah. slim that can we slim that down a little bit? And I yeah. think a platform like yours for pen testing would be great. That way there's no the data goes in and that's where it stays. That's and I right. think there's there's got to be some kind of submission, um, I think from the auditing standpoint to the uh, I guess the the institution or the group of people who run that compliance. Mm-hmm. To me, I think it should be a submission by the company of the results of said pen test or audit directly to that committee. Mm-hmm. And I think that right now in that chain, I think there are several steps where that, that could be a benefit. Yeah. You know, there was a long time and you know, we can look at financial audits yeah. in a way, right? That's a form of like testing for fraud or issues. Right. Centuries of technology investment in making that work effectively. But at the end of the day, the certified public accountant was kind of the ivory tower assessor. And, you know, they they made the decision. Computing has allowed us to create information transparency at a scale we've never been able to do in the past. And we see that in lots of industries. And here is another critical one where we don't need to be opaque. Um, We need to have transparent information that creates a more ethical practice for all of us. It's not about you, the pen tester, and me trying to convince you to let me off the hook on a critical. It's like, hey, this is transparently an issue and we need to solve it. You know, it always boggles my mind a little bit when people are like, let me go argue with the auditor or the pen tester. Right. Unless, you know, within realm, like it's just like their default mode where it might just be easier to say, okay, we need to provision accounts for everybody. <laughs> that just seems like simple easier answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then come back and retest for us and, and we'll have passed that part of the issue. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But a lot of people, like I say, don't want to do that. It's too much work and they would much rather pay the fine and keep moving. Yeah. Or in their case, not get the funding and, and really hurt and have to lay people off. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but you, you raised a really important, uh, I think, uh, piece of information when it comes to looking at, at auditing and auditors and pen testers. You know, we're on the front lines, like facing these companies. And, yeah. you know, we're the ones who get beat up on a regular basis when they're trying to reach those compliance or, or yeah. those standards. 
And that process, I, I don't think we'll ever get past that unless we can automate most of that, that testing. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I mean, in general, the way I look at AI and the way I look at pen testing, like I have a friend who did a automated pen testing platform at Vonahai, um, Alton, and he did a, Alton did a really great job on this platform, but you still need that, that human yeah. intuition and analysis for that data. Um, but I think the way that you have your platform set up, the way, the way that you have it where the data is transparent and each person is, each control owner is responsible Right. That transparency, I think, is super important, but I wish it would echo throughout the rest of the operations across the industry. Yeah. Um, the, you know, when we, like, when we work with a customer, for instance, and uh, we're testing a control with them, there are really three pieces to the testing. Um, the first piece of the testing is, do they have a mapping of controls to the standards? So is there good coverage? Mm -hmm. And the second piece of the uh, testing is, is the control kind of effectively designed? And then the third piece is, do they have samples over the time period showing the control operation happening? Mm -hmm. We, because the system is transparent, it's not you versus the auditor. Right. And, uh, and therefore, we're just like, well, the standard says this, we need to meet the standard. We don't want to diminish the value of your SOC 2 certificate or audit in the marketplace or the value of your pen test because it was you know, done unethically. That's not what you want. No one's going to trust you then. Um, and, and so we have to ensure that that testing is done well. You know, one other thing that always drives me a little nutty as a CTO is like, we talk about automation, but... People seem to think about it categorically. Like right. I have automated all the thing in this category, and that's never true, right? It never works like that. And so I know a little bit about pen testing; it's just enough to be dangerous. And I'm like, okay, so we can automate some of our burp suite scripts, and we can automate some of our port scanning scripts, and and there's some open source tools that uh, provide some automation, but configuration of those things cannot be automated. No. You need to know what IP addresses am I looking at? What does this application do? How, where's the login and where are the forms at a minimum, right? So that right. you can get in and, and test a SaaS-based solution. And then post, you really need a, a experienced pen tester to interpret the results. So right. you can go solve them. Yeah. Yep. And communicate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I I see investors and companies selling on automation and I constantly like, what does that mean? What are we talking about here? Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, you know, like you mentioned AI earlier. And, you know, that reminds me a, a lot of discussions of AI because you hear mm -hmm. people say, we use AI. What exactly do you use? Let's talk yeah. about the algorithm. Is it yeah. Bayes algorithm? Is it, is it a different one? I mean, because... A lot of people claim to have AI, but what it really turns out to be is very loosely machine learning. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. I could go on for hours about AI. Uh, well, AI is is. yeah, I, I, when I first started building quote unquote AI products, I was really loath to use the term because I was like, this is not how, this is not how 2000, you know, <laughs> uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I wanted that computer. This is not it. This is not AI, right? It, right. it frustrated me. But what, where I came down on it was, is that um, 
when we practice machine learning and data science, we are building predictions using data from a pattern matching perspective. And it could be everything Bayesian to random forest to you name the modeling technique, but we're literally building a prediction. When you need to take that prediction and make it consumable by a human being, that is AI. And AI is really a user experience issue. Like how do I design an interface so that you can consume this prediction in such a way that right. it's meaningful to you? And so I've made my peace with it in that way. <laughs> yeah, I've I've battled with it for so long the, the term of AI. So I've, I have a good friend Max Hennemeyer that works at Darktrace. We have a lot of discussions about AI and what mm -hmm. true AI really is and stuff like that. Yeah, and I just I have a hard time with AI currently in cybersecurity, and the reason why is because when I deployed a platform that had AI into a bad network, yeah, it's bad already. So I mean, it sees that as normal behavior, like. What the hell am I supposed to do with this? You know, so you people don't understand this. They get into a bind and they think, oh shit, what do I do? I've got to find a security solution for this problem. Right. Instead of fixing the problem from the ground up from the foundation, they throw AI in thinking, oh, well, I have AI. It's going to fix everything for me. It uh, fixes absolutely not nothing case. for you. <laughs> no. No. It makes a prediction, prediction, like you said, but it predicts your network is shit because it has been shit. It's not going to be right. Yeah. yeah. It, and it, it can only pattern match on the data it's provided, right? Right. So if you provide it poor data or data that's broken, but you say it's good, or or like to your point, like I'm monitoring the network for a possible incident, but incidents are happening all the time and you're right. not able to tag them, then it can't predict that freaking pattern. It's yeah, just it's, not going to work. Yeah. It, it drives me nuts because when, when someone explained it to me the first time, they said, yeah, so AI looks at a computer and then a computer within a group of computers that are similar then with network segments that are similar and i'm just like wait a minute so it's all based off of what normal behavior is for that group of computers right so if that group is already infected then the whole model is screwed the whole model is screwed that's absolutely <laughs> right well and then if you're a if you are a hacker and you want to i mean this is a whole new surface area if there are live models that are constantly adjusting, yeah, you can get in there and feed it bad data and corrupt the model from the outside. Oh, it's it's a it's it's a very dangerous thing. Actually, so that, that's kind of a proof of concept I'm working on right now. So I'm I'm really interested in AI and the future of technology. So what I've done is I've I've started to put together a behavior right to introduce into AI into yeah. an environment as an attacker to poison that environment, to make it think that, okay, this is what's going on, but in the background, this is actually what's going on. Because right. it only knows how to predict previous behavior, so it sees that previous behavior and classifies it completely different than what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's, like you said, there's ways to poison and trick AI. And I think AI in general, once the bad guys get their hands on it and get a, a really good grasp on the power of AI, yeah, I think the world is going to change quite drastically. I think data scientists and engineers need to really start being aware of this type of thing. You know, I mean, maybe I was in the same space back in 98 as we were building our first online software and we didn't lock down a couple ports that we should have or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, they're going to need to take security into mind. And I, I think what they don't like is what's going to be asked of them is to not make these things automatically updating their predictions. Someone right. needs to monitor it 
and be like, I take this test data and I take our latest model and every day we check them and see if the pattern matching algorithm is working as accurately as it was before. If it's wildly off base, then I need to look at what's happened to our model. Yeah, when I when I discuss AI with, with friends and, and people I meet, I usually make the comparison or the analogy of having a child, right? So when you have a child, you're building that, that mind and you're helping form the way it thinks and, and the way it looks at the world so in AI, you're doing the same thing, but you're teaching that child how to look at the network and what behavior is good behavior and what bad, what, what's bad behavior. So it's realistically like raising a child in a network. Oh, a, yeah. lot of people, a lot of people don't get that. They expect that child to go off on its own, graduate college, get itself out of diapers and become you know, a CEO somewhere. It's yeah, not just, it's not yeah. the case. That's how, right? Yeah. You know. It's not, it's not what we can do today, sadly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So what are your thoughts on metaverse and data security and personal security and stuff like that? Yeah, I um, am not big bought in. I lived the second life revolution a little oh, bit. Yeah. yeah. And I saw like a lot of activity go to it, like... Um, folks that uh, I, I worked in enterprise education space for a while and folks were really interested in second life for setting up, you know, immersive university experiences and stuff. What, what I have learned from a, from a, a more of an education perspective on what um, metaverse or that type of immersive experience can be effective for is that it definitely does minimize distraction. So if you've got the goggles on and the headphones on and you're interacting and learning, uh, there's more retention and, and they've been able to do some studies around that. And it is effective. Um, I don't like that Facebook is running it um, because they have obviously not been good stewards with data. They still aren't. And it's still a huge issue to me. And so I certainly am not going to give them my login. No, no. And, and you know, you, you hit the nail right on the head. Facebook has done some questionable things as far as you know, supporting certain political groups and not kicking off terrorist networks from their platform and stuff like that. You know, I, I, and it goes back to AI in the wrong hands. You know, I, I think AI in the wrong hands is a weapon. Yeah. And, uh, but one thing I am looking forward to with AI is more of the videos of people running into walls and stuff with the goggles on. <laughs> that's, those are pretty fun i would you know i want to game with one like i would love to game with one but i'm not gonna put something together like the equipment without a company that i think treats my data as private and right. and really you know i'm there to buy i'm happy to pay for the rig um i don't need you to monetize all my information for right. me just you know, let's play a cool video game in a hyper immersive environment would be a blast. That would be a lot of fun. Um, so I, I, you know, what's obvious about Meta is that they trained their technology on a business outcome of more eyeballs and clicks. And sadly, what is true is that people are attracted to kind of catastrophic or danger feeling or um, conflict. And so it just drives more conflict and they let it loose. And, uh, it was a big issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I look at, you know, some of the social media platforms like Facebook and so on. So, um, and I look at some of the people that I knew growing up and, and some of the information that they share. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that drives me away from those platforms. Yeah. 
there's so much mis misinformation and so much poisonous uh, personalities floating around in that space. Um, and I wish there was something that could clean that up. But, you know, unfortunately, that is the future. And, and the kids that, that are getting addicted to that now is what's going to drive, you know, the Internet and cybercrime. Yeah. Um, but it, we also saw, like you brought up you know, when it first came out, um, the click fraud issue. They're responsible, solely responsible. Those free platforms, free platforms are solely responsible for click fraud, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's uh, very difficult. Um, you know, I think companies are making a marketing expenditure. You know, they are trying to find people that are interested in what they're buying. And then um, social media platforms that are selling as advertising solutions are just driving around metrics that they think bring in more dollars. But, you know, on some level, maybe today we are seeing a, a correction in that market. You know, Facebook has taken a huge hit in their valuation and rightly so and i think the 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 time of the kind of it's funny that they call it a unicorn because it's a mythical beast and sometimes i think the valuation is so freaking mythical that it's just like you're insane and and so uh it, th i'm glad that that's gone because i've enjoyed building businesses that are sustainable which means they make a profit which means that they, you know, are around for their customers and our investors and our employees for a long period of time. It's a great point of pride for me. And so um, I, I, it's funny, I've, I've been in a lot of venture capital backed tech startups, but I try to hang on to my old bootstrap ethos. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. So if anybody wants to get in contact with StrikeGraph or get in contact with you, how would they do that? Yeah. So um, strikegraph.com our website is a great place to go we have a, a chat there that's staffed by some of our sales team if you have any questions about compliance we're happy to answer them and you can schedule a demo right on the website usually a 30-minute demo with us is just a great way to see the solution and talk about the cost and impact for your organization what strikegraph focuses on almost exclusively is making sure that our customers get the certifications that they need to unlock revenue um and then for me personally, LinkedIn is a great way. Um, sadly, my email inbox is like insane. And so I don't necessarily recommend it, but, um, and uh, LinkedIn is probably one of the more um, relaxed social media environments. I don't, I don't. It's, it's, one, of the, sold off. Yeah. it's one of the most, it's one of the more adult platforms. Right, I think. that's um, probably right. <laughs> Mike, um, yeah, none of the kids want to be on it, I guess, or I don't know. Anyway, it's not, it's not uh, cool, anyways. Yeah, please connect with me and ping me there. That's that's a great way to get in touch with me personally. Cool. Well, Justin, I appreciate it, and uh, would love to have you back on the show sometime soon and, and go on this discussion again. Uh, with that, I'll go ahead and close it out, and I wish you the best of luck. Do you have any questions for me or, or about the Haunted Hacker community before we go? Oh, Mike, it's a treat to meet you and the, the hacker community, and I love these conversations. I, I really love the idea that we can cross-fertilize You know what my traditional role as a chief technology officer should understand about ethical hacking and, and security practices and assessments, and also hopefully we can bring some of this compliance into good security practices, right? What we want is the best of both worlds. Hey, I have a SOC 2, and I believe in the security posture that I got audited on. 100%. I agree. Well, Justin, it's been great. And you know, have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Talk to you soon, Mike. Thanks. Bye. Cheers.